A reading from Job 28. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No birds of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Kush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily this morning. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. This is um, 
sort of an odd break in the book of Job in which Job has been in dialogue with his friends for the last sort of three sermons, three cycles, basically from chapter 4 till chapter, the end of chapter 27, there's been this ongoing dialogue. And what happens at this point in the book of Job is first there's this poem about wisdom, uh, chapter 28, which um, as I sat with over and over again, and, and it, you, you read commentators on there, and it's like, it's a beautiful poem, it's a beautiful poem, it's one of the heights of the Bible, this, that, and the other. And for me, the first time I read most poems, it's like, it's a poem, um, which has both some positive and some negative associated with it in my mind. Um, but as I sat with this one this week, I became closer to appreciating what they were trying to talk about. Um, it's weird, because where it starts with like, um, there is a mine for silver and a place for gold which is refined. Like, and then he goes through this long list of sort of how we find things of worth. Now, if you're not skilled in reading poetry, which is me, um, you, you, get, you get lost in the details there, but you lose the extended meaning. What does it mean to, to compare and look at the depths and what we explore and where we go and how we, how we try to find something precious and meaningful and manageable and then to say, but where does wisdom dwell? Um, you look at the human quest then in your first half of your poem and you, you have a different question in that second half. Um, chapter 29, um, Job looks at his life through the where it was so job goes back to one one <laughs> um, and he begins to look at who he was before all this befell him um, and the ordered universe that he lives in is interesting we'll talk about that a little bit today uh, chapter 30 um, yes um, is uh, is then job's understanding of where he is today when we get to that passage, a lot of it will be, but now. But now I am mocked, but now I am scorned, but now the God who used to listen to me in Psalm 130 that Jonathan read for us, who heard my cry, doesn't hear me anymore. Which leads us to then chapter 31, which ends with, um, I should have added it to the end of what, what Emily read today, but in uh, the words of Job are ended. Um, it ends there, but what Job's final words are about in 31, um, if you have this ordered world and then this disordered world, most of what we hope for is a new order out of that, um, that we integrate ourselves into sort of some new way of understanding. And yet, because Job is righteous and has suffered innocently, and if, if you look at what he, he views as the world of of. 29 and 30, new integration is not possible yet. And so he ends with um, uh, his final defense before God. Um, uh, you you uh, need to, uh, well, he's, we'll get to it, but 14 sins he hasn't committed, he goes through. He sort of says, look, this is who I am. I have not done the things worthy of the life that has happened to me in chapter 30. I should still be living in the 29, chapter 29 world. Um, and yet what he finds in the end is that that final plea that, that um, someone would hear me, I sign now my defense, let the Almighty answer me. 
the words of Job are ended. So that's a little bit where we are today, um, and I'll try to, to walk through that um, well. But one of the questions Kelly asked me last week, because she is uh, in and out of the sermons teaching kids, is why do you repeat yourself in the introduction every week? I said, ha, ah, artfully, it's a little bit different every week, but maybe nobody's catching that. Um, uh, part of doing it from memory is it, it has to be different every week. I can't, I can't memorize all that. But um, uh, it's, it's similar to what Brian brought up last week, which is with the book of Job is an odd book of the Bible because there is so much bad advice in it. There's the friends are given multiple chapters, and Elihu coming up, to explain the things we're not supposed to believe and tell people. And so, you know, if you just read those, if you're on a, you know, I'm reading a chapter a day in the Bible and applying it to my life, if you don't keep in mind, if you do that with the book of Job and don't keep in mind the whole context of the book, you'd be applying things to your life that aren't correct in the end. Um, and so you need to, to sort of have a whole picture of the book to really appreciate it in its specifics. But more than that, the book of Job can really get um, magnified into misunderstanding if you lose sight of where it began and where it's going. Um, you can begin to take more and more, um, well, you can begin to ask more and more questions, um, which isn't a problem. This isn't, this isn't a sermon against just trust. Um, uh, but more you begin to ask more and more questions that, that aren't what the book of Job is about. Um, you miss uh, what the forest for the trees, um, uh, or trees for forests, whatever, uh, how that phrase goes. But, but you begin to sort of dive into things and places, and you begin to forget the shape of the book. Now, part of that is it's hard because it is a long book in the Bible. Um, it's uh, maybe the fifth longest, um, but it's the fifth longest also with no narrative. Um, there's a very short narrative at the beginning. There's a very short narrative at the end, but most of it's dense poetry, um, and so if we come to it like the Psalms, uh, we begin to take away things from it that maybe we shouldn't. Um, and so I think it's always important to keep in mind, you know, where the book begins. So we've got first, and uh, that's the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Chris made this lovely banner for us. You heard it at the end of 28 today in a different way. We'll get to that. Um, in the lands of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. That there was this guy... Um, just sort of starts out of nowhere, and he is upright, um, he fears evil, uh, or he shuns evil, f- fears God, um, and, and does what is right. And this is sort of this, this man who has everything going for him at the start of the book. And we're not giving much detail about Job. I was on a hike yesterday with John and Dan. Uh, John goes to church here. Dan runs jailhead counseling. But it, it was hard for Dan to come to the understanding that, that for the most part, Job doesn't seem to take place within the frame of reference of redemptive history. Um, as we did one Sunday, we looked at the name of the Lord, um, which is often in our Bibles, L-O-R-D, capital. Um, that's the one we often pronounce Yahweh, or, or those type of things, um, is, is never really referenced. Particularly in the dialogue with the friends, there's no reference to that name. And so it seems like these people are not people who know what it's like to be a slave that's rescued from Egypt, there are people who live within sort of the created order in a managed way and have, have sort of come to wisdom in a more um, natural understanding of the world. 
Those of us who have done right and pursued the good paths have, have somewhat achieved more, and those of us who have aimed down and robbed and stolen have been punished for it in multiple different ways. In highly social cultures like the ancient Near East, you would imagine that's more true than in our world. Um, but they don't have the same sort of religious imagery we do. But then the divine court scene happens, and the question that, that we can lose if we don't keep it at the front of our minds is the one that comes from the accuser, the Hasatan, uh, Satan, if you prefer, but does jo Job fear God for nothing? Which brings us back to that end of 28, too, that Job seems to preside himself. And in a sad way, the fear of the Lord in the book of Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom. At the end of 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. <laughs> That's all he can say at that. But still, Job, in his long journey, in one way of reading chapter 28, has come to find that he does, not, uh, he does fear God for nothing. Um, he still maintains his innocence. He still thinks that the divine scales have been off. He uses that language, um, weigh me, scales, this type and the other. But he seems to come around to that, that there is... Um, I guess being with this God, I have to do for nothing. Very, very hard truth to learn. Um, and one in which the number of ways, I think for myself, the number of ways in which I deny I have that understanding reveals that deep somewhere I do. Um, oh, that's just the prosperity gospel. That's just those other Christians. I'm not that naive. I've told the Calvinist joke, um, falls down the stairs. I'm glad that's over with this, that, and the other, but we all have these ways of which we sort of like, I think you, you come to church here for some reason. Uh, <laughs> that's not what I meant. Uh, you're here like that we aren't normally the church that preaches that type of thing, and yet it's, I think, still implicit in our contract with God, which is why the book of Job resonates so well with people throughout the centuries and the millenniums. The, the number of us who could say, look, we know we have to love God for nothing, but in the end, there's still something there. Um, and it's very hard to have that understanding. Job, Job perhaps gets there at the end of 28, and with great cost, I think that's the hard part of it. When we listen to Psalm 130, again, that we read today, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, um, and the sense in which God heals us from our sins, that person, um, and it's a good psalm to pair with Job, but at least has an understanding that like, I've done something wrong. They're able to live in a universe in which, look, my suffering is a result of my own behavior. Job, in his integrity, which is hard for us to continually follow with, doesn't let that answer come because he knows it's not true. That's where at the end of the book where God will say that you've spoken rightly of me. We can do two things. We can be like, God's wrong. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think that's some of our temptation when we read this book is to think we're, we're Job's friends. Um, he's obviously done something. We've all obviously done something. And yet Job maintains his integrity, and that's what actually is, is rewarded in the end. Um, it's very, I mean, it, I think probably why I repeat the introduction every week, Kelly. <laughs> it's a very odd book. It's a very hard book. Um, and it, as I've explained it every time, I'm just drawn into different paths of thinking about this. Um, it's why Job's understanding of wisdom in 28, I think, is, is 
when you're reading Job, seems more true. You can dig places, you can go high, you can go low, you can ask uh, the sea and this, which are sort of personified hell and death and this, have, have they heard rumor of it? And everything is no. Like, so you turn this over and over again in yourself, hoping to find some wisdom. Um, even God, after the first time he is, he's suffered, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me to ruin him without reason. Uh, Again, a challenge here in that it seems like the Hasatan is set out at the end of chapter 1 to go and torture Job's family and all the other things, um, his cattle and all this, but it says, the Lord says, you incited me to ruin him, which is another sort of hard part of reading the book of Job. Um, and so they challenge Job again, and he sits there for three days, um, cursing the day of his birth, wishing he had not been, um, and then the dialogue with his friends begins in chapter 4, which took up till today, chapter 28. Um, and, and one of the things worth remembering is if you really want to look at the transformation for Job, and I think his friends maybe helped in this. I've, I've been trying to defend Job's friends a little bit because I find myself so much in them. Maybe I'm wrong in that, but I think, um, well, certainly at the end of the book, I am wrong. Um, I give little defenses of them because I think they're trying to be helpful in two ways. One, in which they're trying to help Job. Admit you're wrong and God will restore your stuff. Confess. Move back into relationship. Your integrity shouldn't cost you all of this. And then second, they're trying to defend the moral order as they understand it. You know, if what is happening to Job is true, everything they understand about the world might need to be rewritten. Um, and let's say uh, there's some theory that Job is king or priest, and Job's friends might be wealthy too on top of that, that like, okay, so the whole way we structured our society may not be true. You want kings and rulers like that. I mean, in some sense, I, I think we're glad that the people who, who govern us from whatever documents they govern us at least believe that like they're aimed correctly. Um, if they didn't believe that they were aimed correctly, that would be... Well, then why don't we rewrite them? <laughs> why don't we figure out something else? Um, and that's the question that Job and his suffering is for them. Um, and so they're trying to maintain their moral order as well as um, help Job. Um, and so his friends uh, come and begin that dialogue. And so if you read 28, 29, 30, 31, Job is at least in a marginally improved place from where he is in chapter 3. Um, the dialogues with his friends has at least spurred him to, to investigate his moral universe. He still comes to the conclusion that it's wrong, but he's at least gone that path. And he's heard the advice of people who um, at times may have the best intentions, finds them wrong, but at least brings him around to another spot, um, which I don't think is worth nothing. Um, and so I think his friends maybe deserve a little bit more credit, like I said, because we are Job's friends. <laughs> um, you can't, if you go really hard on them, we end up in a very sad place. Um, uh, as long as I'm talking about Job's friends, one other thing is Job offers intercession for them at the end of the book. If we live as Job's friends, which I think we do, we have a different Job in Jesus Christ 
who offers intercession for us in our misunderstanding of the moral universe and our bad advice and our bad ways of trying to help or save friends and the ways in which we are using suffering as a reflection of ourself and our own neuroticisms and this, that, and the other. As Job is the one who offers sacrifices for them to be able to be brought back into relationship with God. So to Jesus, and this is a good news thing, we'll end with this too, is the one who offers those sacrifices to bring us back into relationship with God. Not all is lost in being Job's friends, because if it was the case, we all would be lost. Um, so Job 28, which Emily read for us today, um, begins with this idea, 1 through 11, about how we can search out wealth and diamonds and gold and all that. Um, that was the ESV that you read? NIV. Um, I don't think I have that, that um, Lapa, my turn. Yeah, what is it? Lasseline. Um, those type of things we're able to, to I think I have the more uh, modern one. Um, but anyways, that those type of things we're able to search and go down into. One of the things, if you read that too fast too, is, is that as Job walks through that sort of section, what's amazing to him is that he says, um, uh, he has a sense in which in our exploration for things of worth, we bring light to darkness. One of the things Job desires the most is that light would be brought to his darkness. And so Job, when he looks at humanity, he thinks of us as these people, and he, he, um, he's like, the animals can't do this, which is um, an obvious thing, but is interesting to think about. He, he sort of puts uh, humans in this middle spot, that we're capable of seeking worth. We're capable of digging deep to find things like jewelry. Like animals will seek out food, but, but you don't see animals finding um, diamonds and trading them with each other for food. Um, and so like humans have this way in which they, through their technological sort of inspiration, can try to find great worth, even bring light to dark places in the past of doing that. But he, um, as he looks at that, he sees, and he sees us in this middle spot a little bit better than animals, but where can wisdom be found? We want to find worth, and we are capable of finding some worth, jewelry and, and crystal and, and those other things. We are capable of finding some worth, but where does the thing of ultimate worth, the thing that Job needs the most, where does wisdom dwell? Where can it be found? Where does understanding dwell? Like this is the frustration that Job is coming to here in Job 28 is that we're able to find great worth, but this type of thing is very hard for us to find in this poem. He actually asks this question twice, again in, in verse 20. Um, no mortals can comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says to me, it is not in me. The sea says it is not within me. Again, those are personifications of, of hell, uh, Sheol, and um, uh, the depths. You know, even in the non-human realm, Wisdom isn't easy to be found. It is not there. And it can't be bought, is the thing he comes to in this section, which is worth pondering because I think one of the most terrifying things that could happen to us is the solution we need to our lives cannot come through us through technology, our human ingenuity, 
or that we can't go by. I mean, I'm sure this was true in the ancient Near East, but I think a lot of our hopes in the process of our daily lives, from lows to medical, um, from lows to Valley View to um, the internet, I mean, I guess I could have just said YouTube. Like, I was talking to somebody about fixing a car the other day, and they're like, it's all on YouTube. I was like, oh, that's fair. Um, but like, what the, what the understanding of YouTube is, or <laughs> of wisdom is, is that there is all the YouTube videos, all the money to buy things, all the technology, all your resources can't provide you with this thing. That is a huge threat to us. There's something that's worth something that we can't get through any of the things that we get everything else. Can't be found in that way. Can't be a pill, can't be a diet, can't be um, a YouTube tutorial. It needs to be something else. Um, I think of life optimization, like, like so many people are involved in like, well, read this amount of the time, this, uh, I watched a video on time block planning the other day, it will increase your productivity 2,000%. Um, wisdom is not found in those places. And yet we are like programmed to think that more optimization or some solution can be bought or found. Job's understanding is that it can't be found in any of those places. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? Um, it is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Um, destruction and death say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. And yet, in 23, he turns, God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and made a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. Job then sees God in this way of being able to understand and find wisdom. It's weird because I think often we think of wisdom as an attribute of God. Both Proverbs, God creates wisdoms in Proverbs 8. Um, and in this part of Job's, uh, Job sort of, God sort of finds wisdom out there and then confirms it as good. Um, and so it seems that wisdom is found in a way of sort of craftful living. Um, or in, in God's case, um, wisdom is found sort of through the creative act, which is again why it can't be bought or found, because it can't be stagnated in those ways. Um, it can't be sort of locked into um, a simple formula, and this is part of the challenge of Job's friends, um, is they think it can be in a formula, but it can't be locked into something. It has to be dynamically found in your life in the process of living, um, which then uh, can sound quite scary um, because we all live different lives, right? So wisdom is, is not something that I can just consume, and then I can hand it off to David and then hand it off to Shelley and then hand it off to Emily, um, but that wisdom is found in sort of our own created limits, living out our lives. But with the fear of the Lord, 
which for Job is no longer the beginning of wisdom, but he's been stripped down and beaten. I mean, this is the contrast, I think, between Proverbs and Job. Um, That is it. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil, that is understanding. Um, uh, This is where Job has, has come to, and this is a weird sort of, uh, I say weird a lot, but the, an odd way of coming back around to sort of where the book began. He fears God and shuns evil. Job ha- now has this understanding that wherever we thought, him and his friends, that these things could be found, made, manufactured, controlled, understood, that's not it anymore. And yet in dynamically living, um, and maybe fear the Lord here, has this negation to it, um, you know, that at least hems you in. And to shun evil after that is understanding. There's uh, a phrase, uh, does anybody remember Jimmy Baker? I don't, but I had to look him up. Um, yeah, he, was a, we, he raised a bunch of money and stole it and then went to jail. He was a prosperity gospel preacher, right? Yes. Um, there's a, a wonderful interview with him while he's in jail, and they asked him, they said, when did you stop loving Jesus? And his answer was, I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing God. Um, which is an odd way in which modern Christianity, perhaps because we do not like the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom or the fear of the Lord that is wisdom, I think there's, there's some sense in which you can give that answer in many places. I no longer fear God, I just love Jesus. And people go, amen, brother. Um, and I think what, what Baker reveals somewhat into our interview, in that interview, is um, there's some sort of awe and displacement um, hierarchy, if you want to say it that way, that comes with the Christian life in order that can't be surrendered. Otherwise, you will um, find yourself in places that aren't fruitful to be or to go. Um, so that's 28. That was the main part of today's sermon. I do just want to give a quick s- snapshot of 29, 30, and 31. Uh, Job 29 is, is sort of the story of the ordered world, as we talked about. Um, Job, in this sense, in that one, it says, How I long for the months gone by, for the days in which God watched over me when his lamp shone on my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime. All God's people said, Amen. Um, when God's intimate freshness blessed my house. Um, he has a sense in which there was a time, Job 1.1, in which I lived my life in an ordered way. And the things that he, he speaks of here, he talks about um, the community respected him. He helped those in need. He, he brought order to the world. And so as God had blessed him and given him order, so too he went out and brought order into other places of disrepair. Job has the sense in which he has sort of been blessed and he was sharing his blessing and that this is the way the world was supposed to be. Uh, when I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it for the light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way and sat as their chief. I dwelt as king among his troop. I was like one who comforts mourners. Everything was okay in my world. This, Job still thinks, is the way it's supposed to be. This is one of the odd things about 29 and 30. Job thinks, yes, that is what happens when you uh, fear the Lord, shun evil, um, and be upright and blameless. Um, 30 falls into the disordered world. Now, uh, and 
and so that last section I ran about, they see him as king, he sits among them high. 30 begins with, but now they mock me. Things have gone awry. Now I am one mocked. Um, I have disdain around me. Um, uh, in 16, he'll talk about how his body fades away. There's so much bodily image in Job about his body not working anymore as he sort of, his, his bones stick to, to his skin. Um, and he has this way in which this is, this is what has been struck upon me. He talks about God in this one, too. I cry out to you, God, but do, you, do not answer. I stand up, but do you not merely look at me? You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive before the wind, and you toss me about in the storm, which incidentally is coming. Um, I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. He sees that previous one in which God had been near to him at the beginning of chapter 30, 29. In, in 31, it's all of this has been turned against me. The churning inside of me never stops. Days of suffering comfort me. Uh, my skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fevers. My lyre, my song is turned to mourning and my pipe to the sound of wailing. The world I had is gone, and this, but now, and if you see it in the English Bibles, it's, I think, but now is four times in this passage. I was there, but now, here is where I am. In 31, at the place in which you would think integration comes, and it um, doesn't, and I think not just for the narrative purpose, um, Job is still sitting on the ash heap. I think in the journey of, if you've watched people find integration after suffering, or if you've found integration after suffering, it rarely comes to us still on the ash heap. Uh, we have to move out of that place. Um, if you're still in that spot, it is very hard to find. Um, so like in one way I talk about this often is that there's home, there's the breaking of home, and then there's the home after home, which isn't the same as home. This is partially maybe a little bit of Job's problem is he thinks the answer is back in 29. Um, and so when we have uh, our home, our workplace, whatever we think it is, and that breaks, as it does in the course of life, we move into the sort of exile state. We are in Job's spot. Like our song is now mourning. What we had is no longer there. This that um, is broken. The deal has, has gone up. Um, when that happens, the challenge is, and eventually it happens, often in time, although as we talked about at the beginning, pain does break some people, um, and there's nothing, we don't really have control over that. Um, but if, if we are able to regain hopefulness, there is a home that is after home that is not the same as where you were. That integration has to come in somewhat of a different way. Um, Job here wants to proclaim, I'm innocent, which is not a reordered world yet. He wants to argue his case before God, and so this journey will continue into the next section. Um, why we read that odd passage from Matthew's gospel that Jonathan read for us about lust, Job makes a covenant with my eyes, I will not look lustfully at a woman. Um, I think that the ancients saw something very interesting or clearer than we do in this idea of making a covenant with our eyes. 
We consume so much. I mean, it's the first thing that he wants to say he's innocent of. Look, I made a covenant with my eyes. In Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, murder is first. You know, if you say to somebody, you fool, you've murdered them in your heart. But second is lust. Like, there's this idea in which um, the disorder resides very much on the inside of our souls. And one of the ways it expresses ourselves is what we choose to consume with our eyes. And what we consume with our eyes doesn't stop there, I think is one of the things that Job sees, that uh, thou shalt not covet sees, and that Jesus sees in the Ten Commandments, or the prohibitions against idolatry, too, throughout the um, Bible, is that we, where we choose to look, where we choose to place our vision, which is metaphorical and literal, um, actually has the power to make who we are. Um, so often we think we're the sum of all our choices in the modern world. Um, but I think Job, Jesus, um, the Ten Commandments have this idea of you might be the sum of all your aims. You might be the sum of your projection. You might be the sum of where you're looking. Um, and so then he goes through a list of 14 other things that he is innocent of in this passage and ends with, oh, that if I had someone to hear me, I sign my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. What's odd is that the, again, going back to the beginning of Job, the Almighty is the one defending Job. Um, the accuser, the Hasatan, is the one who's, who's trying to say he only loves you because there's a hedge around you. So um, there's a bit in which uh, the Almighty's answer has already been proclaimed and that Job is this one. Job doesn't know that. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder, which you would, and he kind of does. I feared the Lord. I shunned evil. I was upright. Um, I would put it on like a crown. I would give him account of every step. I would present it to him as a ruler. Um, who is this who darkens my counsels? Gird up your loins, and I shall question you like a man, is what we're going to get to when jo God appears on the scene. And yet Job's confidence in this passage is one in which he has done no wrong, which is part of his integrity, and yet he wants an answer for what has befell him. In the book of Job, the answer is not what happened in the heavenly courtroom. We'll get to that. But the final thing for today is, my dear children, I write you this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. Job is asking for an advocate in heaven. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, whom Job is a type of, but not exactly, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for also the sins of the whole world. As Job waits for an advocate, canonically the story has not advanced to this point, but we instill in this disordered world, that pattern that Job talked about still happens today. Ordered world, broken world, finding some integration still happens today. We know that there is one who is an advocate for us in our contribution or contrib how we contribute to the brokenness, but also not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Let us pray. 
God, we have heard the heavenly courtroom scene. We have heard Job's cry of lament in chapter 3. We have followed the dialogue with Job's three friends on how we might piece together what has happened in the world. Today we hear Job's cry and poem about where wisdom is to be found. We too in our lives, and this is not condemned in the book of Job, but seek high and low for value. We seek out things that are precious to us. We seek out things we can trade and buy. We do all this, and yet, where does wisdom dwell? Where does craftful living reside? It is you who seeks it out, claims it, and names it God. And it is for us to find that in Job's language, in fearing God and shunning evil. That is wisdom, and that is understanding So we pray that you would draw us into the pattern of your son, learning to fear God rightfully from him and to shun evil as he modeled in his life. We ask this in his holy name. Amen.